I'm on the scene. I mean, I hate to see this senseless milling around and this uh, pushing and shoving and this obvious nervousness until I arrive. Now, it's going to be okay. I'm here. <laughs> big 47 down. I repeat, Big 47 down is now on the scene. All right. By the way, this uh, show features some rather experimental techniques which uh, may offend a few of you. We are playing uh, subliminally behind this show the soundtrack of one of the better stag films. If you have the right kind of ears. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not easy. Well, all right. You notice one thing, that, that, the, that the intake of beer rises steeply at 11 o'clock and uh, rises to a crescendo shortly after midnight. So let's salute the beer drinkers who are with us. If you want to find something out, you've got to ask tough questions. And we want to find something out. Do you know you're probably drinking the wrong beer? Do you know there's a beer so good some people won't drink any other kind? Do you know this great beer's name is Valentine? Does that surprise you? Why not try a Valentine today? We can ask tough questions about beer because we've got the answer. The only answer. Valentine. Yeah, Valentine. The action is ready to go. Uh, well, before we do anything else, we'd like to salute the Fink of the Week. Would you uh, please uh, get my Fink music ready in there? We'd like to salute the Fink of the Week. All right. As part of our vast public service programming, this totally concerned radio station tonight salutes the total Fink of the Week. Feeling as it does that Finkdom, being one of mankind's major characteristics, it should get its proper, just, and due recognition from time to time. Thank you, thank you. A charge of illegal possession of narcotics, this is from St. Louis, was uh, dropped against Roy W. Walsh when laboratory tests showed that the suspicious substance that he was peddling on a street corner happened to be just catnip. What a thing. They're not telling you what the gang around the corner did, though, after he was released. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's all right. I think it's good. Chapman. But uh, now, the only reason we're bringing this up, you know, that you can't trust anybody these days. Did you read about what Fat Vinny said? You don't know who Fat Vinny is? Didn't you read about him? He was testifying before the crime committee. And uh, he was... Uh, testify because he had apparently and was a member of a rather notorious gang of thugs and Fat Vinny who weighed 396 pounds and was 5 feet 2 inches tall and wore a black and yellow checkered sport coat when he testified was noted for his gravel voice Fat Vinny when he was asked about the mob he said I wouldn't touch them guys they're a bunch of bad characters and uh, Fat Vinny of course in the moment of total realization of his place in life, uh, recognized that he had fallen in early with bad company. And by the way, has it occurred to you that some of you may be bad company that other people are falling in with? <laughs> you know, think, you know, really, you know, I've never met a, a total bad guy, a horses you know what, who knew he was. Everybody feels he's wrong, you know? At the 
And it would be very easy to, to conceive of the fact that at one time, and I know, I, I'm not so sure that, uh, that this didn't happen, that at one time that there were kids, when I was a kid, who was warned, who were warned against hanging around with me. Bad company. And uh, <laughs> it's easy to fall into bad company. As a matter of fact, would you please uh, prepare my bad company music out there? We'd like to sort of... Bad company. By the way, I also feel that another crowd of people who's rarely given any credit are wet blankets. I, uh, I, I feel that this crowd, of course, it's become a major occupant. What do you think Ralph Nader is? He's a classical wet blanket. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, it's true. And uh, we had, of course, Nader always reminds me of my Aunt Clara. She, she uh, all of her life, in fact, even to this day, Whenever she went to the jazzy restaurant, she would uh, sit down. It was very embarrassing. It was a great restaurant, candlelight, and, and uh, the French waiters with towels over their arms, you know, the kind of people who would see the wine mist. Well, you know, when you sit down at a restaurant like that, you do not very elaborately take out your napkin and very carefully polish the uh, knives and the forks. Ostentatiously do it, you know. but And then... Take your water glass and hold it up to the light so you can see whether or not there are any uh, streptococci germs running around the front. But this is my Aunt Clara. Life was a plot. And she always figured somebody was putting Spanish fly in her hamburger. We will not, uh, for those of you who do not know what Spanish fly is, that will come in the next semester. That's beyond the scope of this present course. For those of you who do catch the reference... I would like to suggest further reading can be found in James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, we'll, by the way, we'll also send you a bibliography if you'd like. Various things. Very important. Uh, we would like to salute Bad Company. It's still going on. Here's a note from Miami, please. Bad Company. <laughs> yeah. What a rotten piece of music. That's great. That's so bad that it's aggressively bad, and it gives it a kind of a panache. That's it. That's in such exquisitely bad taste that it achieves a kind of purity of line. It's like doilies with uh, sitting bulls stitched into the front, full color. That's groovy. Come on, bring it up. Oh, that's bad. Hey, you're dancing good. Hey, all it there. We'd like to salute Leon Ledbetter. Uh, Leon Ledbetter's 14-year-old son in Miami was arrested for shoplifting a 10-cent bag of peanuts after spending his last dime on a pinball machine. When Ledbetter uh, heard of his kid's arrest, see, he became really bugged. And he, he, he didn't get mad at the guy that ran the store. He got mad at the machine that took the kid's dough. So he headed down to the department store where the pinball machines were located, carrying his axe. There, Ledbetter told a half-dozen youth to stand clear. I could just hear him you know, coming into this place where all the pinball machines are. Stand back! I say stand back! He then proceeded to demolish all three machines with his axe. He left his axe embedded in the last one. Kind of a symbolic gesture there. Ledbetter said by telephone that he was keeping out of sight. <laughs> I like that. He's got a nice touch. I'm keeping out of sight. But he would probably turn himself into police. He said he had no regrets about his action. And we quote him here. By God, I brought them blankety-blank machines to their knees. 
Man against machine. It is a continual battle and a continuing battle. Of course, the most evil of all machines is a machine that peddles evil itself. Now, uh, I mean, we, we're all used to machines like IBM computers and that. They can be peripherally evil. Uh, hold it, hold it. The argument's afraid of machines, but you know that the machine that itself caters to man's baser instincts must be considered at this point. After all, what is a slot machine? What does it cater to? Not certainly the more pure thoughts, which is, you know, uh, penny saved is penny earned, uh, hard work is its own justification, you get what you pay for, all those things. You know, these are all uh, kind of a kind of poor Richard Almanac slogans that most of us live by and incidentally are defeated by. Like, uh, you know, like one of the greatest ones is, uh, is uh, early to bed, early to why, you know, early to, early to bed, early to rise. Forget it. Listen, Winston Churchill never got up before noon in his life. And man, he made it bigger than anybody I ever heard of. And uh, I think most of us are led down the garden paths by these by these uh, slogans. For example, uh, penny saved is a penny earned. <laughs> you could save pennies all of your miserable life. And by the end of it, you wouldn't have enough to put the down payment down on a second-hand Pontiac in Jersey. This is a fact. The guys that really score big never save a damn thing anywhere. They squirt it all over the place. Now, you see, it depends on whether you got any talent. <laughs> just to, you know, just to squirt your dough around is not enough. You got to know how to do it. Well, you know, I read this piece, and I, I must admit to you that at first uh, it didn't do anything to me. I read it. I'm sitting there. You know, it's just like you're sitting in a in a barber chair, or you're sitting in a bus or someplace, and you're reading. You're reading um, newspapers. You're getting reports from all over the world, you know. You're sitting there with a newspaper. Like I read this one about cannibalism. I thought it was kind of good. Uh, you know, there's been another outbreak. In addition to when we mentioned, cannibalism is on the, on the outgo. And, uh, yes, this one happened in the Middle East somewhere. Someplace uh, the nomads uh, were convicted of uh, serving up somebody's aunt uh, with uh, tomatoes and couple of potatoes baked and, you know, nicely done. It was, I understand it was all done. It was done very well. The sauce was particularly good. However, uh, they were convicted of this thing, and so their lawyer got up and said, well, it was because it was a religious thing, let him see. With that, one of the nomads got up and blew the whole thing. He says, what are you talking about religion? It was because we're, we're, we're eating nothing but sago and pomegranates, and we just wanted to have a little extra, you know, what, what he tried to say was that he had a little taste for it, that's all. And it was nothing religious at all. He didn't want to have a religion dragged into it by the heels. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, they all got seven years, which isn't bad, I suppose, you know, after all, seven years. Because they're certainly going to have a hell of a lot of stuff to talk about when they get out, I'll tell you that. Not every guy that gets thrown in for cannibalism. But I just wonder how the rest of the prisoners would look at you when you arrive. You know, all the regular pickpockets and guys that are in for uh, stuff like barristry and piracy and, uh, you know, the average crimes. Uh, guys that are in uh, for finagling with stock. In comes a crowd of 
cannibals. I suspect there could be... Especially if the food isn't very good in the jug. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, the guy figures he's already in. What the hell? You know, he might as well. I mean, you can't get, you know, you can, they can't get you for the same crime twice. That I know. Right, Tony? True. Unless it's a real rotten crime, which you'd know about. However, uh, six of one happened as the other. I read this piece. See, I'm sitting there in the barber chair, and I'm reading about piracy, and I'm reading about, yeah, you know, that's on the upswing. Did you know that? Piracy, absolutely. I mean, real piracy. I'm not talking about these joints along 6th Avenue where you get shucked like an ear of corn. You just throw up in front of some of them, you find one of your shoes is gone, but that's something else. Uh, I'm talking about real piracy. You know where guys come out of the dark with their little boat? There's a guy up in the front, you know, and he's got a knife in his mouth, and he's wearing this uh, bandana handkerchief on his head, and they fire a shot across the bow. That's been happening around... uh, the Philippines. It's kind of exciting. If you'd like to get into a new growing business, there it is, friends. And uh, it's happening. And it's romantic. You know, you could always write your memoirs later. I know at least 15 publishers that would give you, you know, any mount. Seven years of piracy. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I'm reading all this stuff. See, have you have you ever had the feeling that it's all a fantastic... Uh, uh, you sit and read the paper. When you think of the paper, when you read the paper, you watch the uh, 6 o'clock news or something, and you're getting these reports from all over. Does any of this have any reality to you, really? I mean, you see these people being swept out to sea in a flood, and then there's another quick... There's a Babo commercial. The lady plumber shows up, and then there's a shot of, uh, of uh, Jim Bowden talking about the Yankees. Then, there's, uh, <laughs> then they go back to the weather. Have you ever been able to understand any of those weather things these guys do? This is getting so ritualistic that it has no meaning at all. There's one guy at ABC that touches an involved thing that involves fronts, lows, disappearing occlusions. And so forth. You don't know whether it's going to be hot or cold or anything. I think it's all a, a great cloud of smoke that's called show. It's the show, see? So uh, ultimately, nothing has any reality to us. I mean... Uh, you sit there in the middle of it all, and piracy. That reminds me, this is W-O-R. No connection, it's a word association there. It's nothing at all. I just didn't mean that. <laughs> well, uh, actually, it's not truly piracy. It's more like pickpocketing, which uh, has a technical term. We won't go into that. However, this is W-O-R. This is New York, and this is a town that would know about things like piracy. And you're listening to the headquarters here. And uh, before we go any further, uh, uh, do you have a couple things in there for us? All right, uh... They say there's a time in life for everything. For Dubonnet, the time is before. Speaking of speaking of uh, this bad company, and I, I'm going to tell you this: there isn't one of us who secretly, deep down inside of us, have a very deep desire to hit the jackpot. In other words, to get something for nothing. I really do it. Have you ever looked in the eyes of the guys that are waiting to get on those buses that go out to the racetrack every day? There's a curious Captain Ahab quality about them. They really do. They have. They're always looking off into the middle distance. These are these are nervous men. These are guys that are pursuing a curious kind of vaguely uh, slippery grail. They hit it big. They hit it big. And I want to say that if, 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 if at any point in your life, if hitting it big happens to you, 
and a moment of weakness. You know, when we're kids, things that happen to us at that time mold our attitudes for the rest of our life in a curious, subliminal way. Now, I'm not talking about uh, Freud and uh, sexual traumas, but I'm talking about either more subtle, perhaps life force things. For example, if at the age of six, before you, you know, you're, you're even before the age of even making actual decisions, you put a nickel into a slot, and 64 nickels come out, there's no turning back. If, on the other hand, I can guarantee you, this kid Ledbetter, who was shucked clean by the pinball machines, is going to think long and hard all of his life. He's going to play very close to the vest. Because he, he you heard this piece? He wound up by stealing a bag of peanuts. He was that broke. Well, I went through a thing once. I don't know whether any of you ever went through the pinball thing when you were a kid, but that is a phase. I've never seen girls do it. Now, I'm not being anti-woman's live. I simply have never seen a gang of girls who every night hang around a candy store, play at a pinball machine. <laughs> it's a kind of madness. You know that madness, Jim? You know it? Well, it hit me one summer. It was I was 14. Up to that point, pinball machines were things they just had there. I used to see guys standing over them and working back and forth and hollering. Never had anything to do with the pinball machines, except once in a while you put a nickel in you play it, but suddenly the madness caught this one fantastic summer, and it, it, it it's like, I, I, I can understand what it's like. I, I know what it must be like being hung on heroin to have a monkey on your back. Once you get the pinball monkey on your back, it's almost impossible to fight. And how it started, it started innocently enough. I was, I was peddling papers. I had a paper route. And uh, the paper route that we had, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. I mean, when I think back on it now, it, it, even now it makes me sick. I mean, you could, oh, well, you know one of the reasons why old gamblers have a curious look in the eye? Because they have a vague suspicion way in the back of their minds of a wasted life. Where did it all go? <laughs> Where did it all go? Now, if you see a winning gambler, he's usually living on Park Avenue and usually owns an insurance company and everything by then, so you never see that guy. It's the losers you see. The winners are rarely observable. So, at the age of 14, this summer, I have my morning paper out. And every morning at 5 a.m., I would show up at a place called George the Greek. George the Greek... And he was Greek. Everyone was, we all we had even you know how you develop a certain uh, ritual in your own life of saying certain things to certain people, and you never break that pattern. Like every day you see the same elevator starter, and he always says something like uh, "hot enough for you," and uh, you always have the same answer, like uh, "yep," or uh, <laughs> "see, it's a ritual." Well, we had a ritual with George, and George, uh, who was Greek, see, and so the ritual was. Uh, uh, George, you know, you come in and say, Hello, Georgios. That's all we ever said. And he didn't have a Greek accent, but because he was called George the Greek, we all used it. So every morning at 5 o'clock, I'm squatting in the middle of George the Greek's little shop there. With a can it was a candy store-like, 
But he also distributed all the papers around there. He had the, more, the paper routes and all that stuff. He had the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, all these papers. So every morning, I, would, uh, I had a morning route and I had an afternoon route. I would leave it at uh, the afternoon route about 3.30 in the afternoon, get back about 6. See, it played hell with my, uh, with my tennis game, I can tell you that. But uh, nevertheless, you know, you like to see the bread coming in. Uh, you know, I had all kinds of projects. I was involved in building model airplanes and all that stuff. See, so money was very important. I, you know, there was nothing like uh, buying another model airplane uh, uh, motor, <laughs> you know, an engine <laughs> for a, for a gas model, and uh, and getting the money madness because you got to have this motor. See, so th- this keeps you going. It's called motivation. Well, every morning, yeah, it's also called money hungry. So every morning at 5, I'm squatting down there in the cold with a bunch of other guys, Flick and Schwartz and the Bruner. All of us, all the guys had, this, had these paper routes. So we come in every morning at 5, we squat down, and we start folding our papers and sticking them in our sack. Well, at uh, 5, that's maybe why I am not so keen on bicycles. You know, I've dis- you know everybody's hung on bicycles these days? Well, I think a guy who ever used a bicycle in his work is not a bicycle cuckoo. That uh, to most kids, I suppose, bicycle meant fun. You know, you go riding down to the park. But if you had to go out on your paper out every day on your bike, it became subtly involved in your mind with terrible work. <laughs> you know, the paper goes through. So I would be riding my bike when the when the rain is coming down, and uh, I'd ra- I'd ride it through the sleet. I remember riding my bike when the temperature's 15. Have you ever ridden your bike at 15 below zero, friends? through half-frozen puddles and the sleet coming down, you begin to have, uh, you know, bike riding is, uh, you know, it's some, something you don't look forward to doing. You have to do it. So every morning, our bikes are all out in front. Me and Schwartz are flinging around at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you're half-dead with sleep and stuff, and we're folding our papers and sticking them away. Silent crowd. It was a silent, angry crowd. Because, first of all, that sack full of those papers... I would say weighed in the vicinity of oh, two, three quarter tons, something like that. In fact, if you notice that my left shoulder, Jim, is lower than my right shoulder, that's right. Well, there's a groove, a three-inch groove that is worn on my left shoulder. See, I pad it every morning. I stick little things in there. But there's a groove that goes all the way down to my clavicle just from carrying that sack. Well, that is a big sack. So you would sling it down so that the bag hangs on your right side. Now, uh, delivering a paper from a bicycle, you don't stop and walk up. And it was all a matter of, a, of, of sidearm throwing motion. And so I had all kinds of little variations. I used to play, I used to play them. I used to play ricochet shots. I, yeah, I used to play it. See, there, like there'd be a porch had two pillars on the side, see, right, there, right next to the steps. And I would play it. I, once in a while, I'd try a double ricochet, you know, dunk, 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 you know, between the two, between the two pillars, you know. Dunk, 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 crash through the windows, and I go like hell. Say, well, I, it was, you have to do these things in your job to keep your interest going. Little things like that. There was one great one. I used to look forward every morning to this one. It was a it was a sidearm underhand shot that was really a beautiful shot because the paper was to be delivered on the second floor of a building. It was a a long steps that went up like a, it was an apartment, say. And they were on the second landing up there. Well, there was a, a bucket up there all the time that they use apparently to scrub the floor or something. There was a bucket out there. And every morning I would come past and just with a low sweeping motion, you know, 
It would go shooting up the stairs, and I would play it off the back wall and into the bucket. It was a great feeling. You know, I'd go... And I'm already about, you know, 20 or 30 feet past it, and I could hear it in there. I'd hear... Into the bucket, Shepard, Shepard cans another one. Fantastic shot from the center line with 30 seconds to play. Shepard hits a fantastic long push shot <laughs> out around 30 feet. And you get these fantasies going. Shepard's always scoring. He's, he's always landing a, a long, uh, a tremendous pass to that end that's going out there in the 20-yard line. Well, this morning, sitting there on the floor, it's cold. No interest in anything except folding these papers and George's walking around back of his little counter there. He's doing whatever he did every morning with his books and stuff and yelling at the guys to, to, to make their collections more consistent and all that kind of stuff. And I'm squatting down there. And we had a guy that used to deliver papers with us who was a natural. You ever run into a natural? You ever read Bernard Malamud's The Natural? good book. Look it up. It's not really about baseball. It's about a natural. Now, what is a natural? Well, a natural is a guy who is just that. He's a natural. Most people have to learn to do things. I mean, you know, golf. Most people have to take lessons. You go out and you go to the pro and all that. But a natural is a natural. At the age of 12, somebody puts a golf ball in front of him. He's never swung one, a club in his life. He looks down at that, and it all falls into place. He just pulls that club head back, whoosh, 260 yards. A natural always knows how to do it, and he does it without thinking. That's a true natural. Well, we had a natural in our crowd, Bolus Rakowski. Well, like most naturals, he wasn't aware of the fact that he was a natural. He was always aware of the fact that hardly anybody around him could ever do anything else as well as he could do it, but he just figured that was because they were stupid. He didn't realize that it was because he was a genuine natural. Well, this morning, Bolus, you know, he's on the paper, and uh, Bolus was a little short, squat Polish guy, squat. He was built like a, a kind of like a fire plug with feet, you know, wide shoulders, squat, and what a fantastic ball player. You know, have you ever known guys in your life that had they followed the professional trail, had somebody along in their life, uh, you know, said to them, look, why do you just do this for fun? Why don't you go out and be a pro? This guy could have gone all everywhere. I've never seen anybody hit a ball any place. And I went on to play some pro ball. I've never seen anybody hit a ball like Bolas could. Bolas was a bad ball hitter, which is dangerous. He was one of the, worst, the most dangerous kind of hitters. Guys would throw him a ball because he was so squat and short. So he was always getting balls thrown at him that we were high. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's why most bad ball hitters are little short squat guys. Yogi Berra is a classical case, see, because it's not easy to pitch to that kind of guy right away. See, he tends to get more bad balls thrown at him. And so I can remember Bullis hitting a ball that was a foot and a half over his head, just with this tremendous windmill swing he had, enormous uh, coordination, which is always the hallmark of a natural. His coordination was like an animal. That the hooded cobra does not have to learn how to strike. He's got the natural coordination for it, right? You know, you poke around in the weeds over there in India, <coughs> like lightning. 
And he does it without thinking. He just, bam, it's a reflex action. And that's the essence of a natural. Well, I can remember Bolas standing up there at the plate. And uh, these pitchers, fast pitching, you know, these pitchers throwing a high fastball, a foot and a half over his head. And the last thing that you would see of that ball is a faint, a faint disappearing meteor trailing smoke 490 yards out <laughs> and going up when it disappears into the clouds. And, of course, it was natural with Bolas. Well, we all knew this, see. We knew that Bolas was a natural in football. Fantastic football. I, 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 I'll never forget one time talking about football. If you've ever played any really organized sandlot football, you know what organized sandlot football? This is real football. It's organized sandlot football. It's not, it's not uh, just a bunch of kids in the backyard, uniforms and everything. I remember Bolas, who was about five feet six one time, going out for a pass so fast that the pass, the, 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 the pass defenders went back with him. And all you saw with this was this crowd of guys, all of whom were a foot and a half taller than him, in a, in a mob. And suddenly, out of the crowd, like a rocket, going straight up in the air. I remember Bola shooting straight out, up in the air, like a, like a Roman candle, and catching the ball in one hand. It was a line drive pass, and just hitting the ground running. I mean, literally running. His feet were a blur, and zap, he's gone. He was a natural. He was a phenomenal. Well... He never went pro. It was to him. It was, uh, it was just what he did, see. And he never went pro, and he should have. Well, on this day, though, we were to see something which I, well, I to this day I've never forgotten. Because you see, it taught me that inside of Shepherd, there is a thick vein of potential rottenness. Yeah, that's right. Now you must understand up to this point. I have worked for what I did. I, every morning, got out there and peddled those papers so that I could build a model airplane. And peddle those papers. I mean, it wasn't peddling them. I delivered them, see. And through rain and through hail, through sleet, through storm. Every morning, I'm on my Elgin. And I'm out there throwing those papers. And so is Schwartz, who, if anything, was even more honest at the Square John than I was. Well, in the middle of our little crowd this morning walks Bolas Rakowski, who did not have a paper route. He just walks in. It's about 6 o'clock in the morning. Walks across the floor, the candy shop, and settles down in front of a pinball machine marked the Olympics. You know, they all have names, like uh, the Indy 500. You've seen those. Like uh, names like uh, uh, baseball, all-star baseball, names like that. He squatted down in front of one called the Olympics. And it had runners all over it. You know, the big thing on the top, it had guys running, guys holding the baton, guys jumping on the uh, pole vaults and all that stuff. And the object of this game was to accrue... Olympic points, <laughs> what they call marathon Olympic points. And if you put the ball into certain holes, you get more points. See, like if you won, if you won the marathon, you got like a thousand points. If you put the ball in that one, it had bumpers all over that lit up and stuff. If you put it into a hundred yard dash, you got the fifty points. That wasn't as important. Say, if you won the pole vault, that was two thousand points. And way up at the top, they had one. Uh, 
It was called, uh, oh, this thing that Bill Toomey won. Uh, yeah, uh, what, what do they call it? Yeah, the decathlon. If you, if you won the decathlon, that was like the jackpot. It doubled everything that was on the score, on the board, say. And in addition to that, if you put it in the decathlon, you not only doubled your score, but you also automatically won a free game. And it was a tremendous thing. It was lit up. Well, Bolas walks in, and I look up, you know, I see Bolas there. I see that, that broad back, that short, squat, angry figure of the natural. And George looks up from behind the candy counter and said the following. They're closed, Bolas. I got them turned off. Bolas turns around and says, when are you turning them on? It was like a walk down. That is, and we're watching this thing. See, it's the first time I had seen this. And George says, I'm not going to turn them on until this afternoon. I, have, I don't have no time to mess with the pinball machines. I'll, I'll plug them in this afternoon. I don't know what time. Baldus turns and walks out, exuding anger. This is a whole new ball of wax. What's this about? So Schwartz says to George, what, what was that? And George says, look, that kid comes in here every day, cleans me out. That guy, I owe that guy about 50 bucks now in free games. says he could come in and play on that machine till the year 2000, free. Schwartz says, what, what do you mean? He says, well, he, he earns maybe five, six bucks a day out of me playing a machine. My paper route paid me $1.86 a week. Bolas was making five, six dollars a day playing the pinball machine. Well, that set a train of thought in, you know, that's terrible, friends, when you realize that you are a sucker in life. Other guys are making it real fast, easy, and having a lot of fun doing it. And you're there pushing, not only got your nose to the grindstone, you got your kneecap to the grindstone. <laughs> In fact, you are the grindstone, you know. Well, it started. That afternoon, when we came back to the to the place there, to George's joint after the morning essay in, in, in lassitude and defeat, oh, I hated my paper out. Oh, even to this day, I, I, I still get itchy when I look at a folded-up paper because I know some poor little son of a gun did it. So <laughs> I know what he went through. So when, that afternoon, when we got back, we start to play the machines. It just started like that. Bolas comes walking in, and we started to play the machine, the Olympiad. And I'll never forget the sight of Bolas standing next to that machine. I have never seen anybody as good at this. Because I, I never realized at that time that playing pinball machines involves a tremendous amount of talent. That, uh, you know, we used to just put the nickel in, pull the thing back, and start letting the plunger go, see. Bolas knew exactly what hole he was putting that ball in every time. And he did it like an animal. I remember asking him, how do you do it, Bolas? How do you get that decathlon thing? He says, well, yeah, watch. Sing. The machine would go. Going, going, going. Going, going, going. He just stands and watches it. And George is on another nickel. Bolas could play these games like ten of them, <laughs> ten of them every five minutes, the way he was playing them. 
Well, it began to be an obsession. Every cent that I got on that lousy paper route, I plowed back into an attempt to make the big score. To learn to play this game. Two months go by. Schwartz is every day with me. We're huddling over that pinball machine. Flick is over there working the All-American machine. <laughs> Jack Martin is constantly trying to beat the 500, the Indy 500. And we would shift back and forth. And I remember Bolas walking in. Bolas used to take on other guys. In fact, guys would come from across town, big grown-up guys. And they would have these fantastic evenings. I'll never forget one night. Bolas is working the Olympiad, standing next to the machine. And two guys have come in who I didn't even know, grown-up types, walk in. And uh, one of them says, uh, uh, a dollar you can't make the marathon. Uh, a dollar you can't take the 100-yard dash. And Bolas says, you're on. And by the end of that evening... They were playing for something like two, three hundred bucks that were laying out on that pinball machine, and Bolas was hanging over it, swaying. He had a way like a snake almost. He'd stand next to the machine, and by some kind of strange concentration, he could control the machine. He would be part of it. Have you ever seen a really good pinball operator, Jerry? A really good one? Well, they're, they're fantastic. You know, they, they bet a lot of money on them. I mean, tremendous amounts of money. And so Bolas, at the age of 15, is playing pinball games now, and we would stand in a silent crowd on Everybody's watching for the cops, because apparently this was illegal. Bolas would stand at the business end of this machine, hunched over, radiating concentration. You couldn't talk to him. It was like, it was like trying to talk to a, to a gorilla or something when he was working that machine. His eyes are slits, and he's hanging down, moving back and forth. His shoulders would move back and forth. And as that ball moves up through the, through the, through the lanes and against the bumpers, balls would move. Mm, mm. You'd hear him grunting way down. Mm. And the ball would go, ding, 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 He could keep a ball rolling down this lane. He could keep it going, if he wanted to, maybe two hours. And never get down to the bottom, you know, where it says discard. It says fantastic control. Well, by the end of the summer, the word is out. And guys are coming from all the way to the other end of town. And at night, after we would finish the, the uh, paper route, 6, 7 o'clock, George would close the door, see, and five or six guys would stand around this pinball machine. Of course, we're all spectators watching, and there would be Bolas playing some great champion from, from East Chicago. And they've got three, 400 bucks on the line. That they'd lay it right out there on the machine, and they would bet each other $50 on the green bumper. Bolas would say, $50 on the green bumper, you're on. And then you'd hear back, guys are betting off against each other, you know, betting uh, against them or for them. And Bolas was moving back and forth like this. Well, it looked so easy. It looked like we could all do it. And I started to spend my money playing the pinball machine. Because you know when you're at a certain age, you don't recognize talent. You don't know that all men are not created equal. You suspect something's funny. But you don't know it yet. And Bolas was this 
non-pareil at the pinball. And then that one night, I'll never forget it, the night that Bolas was playing, must have been 25, 30 people packed into George's, all, all in a great crowd around Bolas Rakowski, who was bow to us. And Bolas Rakowski is hanging over the Olympiad. They're playing the Olympiad machine. And they've been playing for about two or three hours when a guy walks in right out of the street, tough-looking bird, walks in and he says, I hear there's a guy that knows how to play the Olympiad. Here. Everybody looks around. Somebody says, yeah, there he is, Bolas. Guy says, think you can play, huh? Bolas says, yeah. Fifteen minutes later, Bolas has been cleaned out. One hustler has heard of another hustler. It's a strange feeling. Guy stuck the wad of dough in his pocket and walked out. Still see him in my mind. Tall, skinny guy, looked a little like a minister. My God, could that guy play that pinball? Never saw. At that point, I had thought that no one could conceivably beat Bolas. I'd never seen him beaten. And he just walked out. It wasn't until years later that I found out that George the Greek himself had gone out and rounded that guy up to have Bolas cleaned out. Because once a hustler is beaten, he loses something. Just loses something. Well, that summer, before I went back to school, I figured it out. That entire summer, by September 1st, I was $12 behind that I owed George money I had borrowed to play that damn pinball machine. I didn't own the motor that I wanted for my plane. I had squirted away a summer. I've never bet on anything since, Frank. So you see, out of each good comes uh, uh, some evil, huh?